You're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Listen in and learn alongside me as I interview some of the sharpest minds ranging from economists, software developers, investors, entrepreneurs, and writers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Stefan Levera. And today I have a very special guest. He is Adam Back. He has he has a PhD in computer science. He is the CEO of Blockstream, one of the really important Bitcoin and blockchain companies out there at the moment. He is a cypherpunk and cryptographer, a privacy advocate, and he is also the inventor of Hashcash, which is cited in the Bitcoin white paper. So definitely a very important person from our ecosystem. Welcome to the show, Adam, and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, so I, I see you guys have been doing some really uh, impressive things, and uh, today it w- we were going to talk a little bit about Blockstream satellite. So I think maybe it would be good if you could just offer the listeners some intro and background on the Blockstream satellite service and product, and then after that we can then look to talk about what the new update is coming with Blockstream satellite. Yeah, so... Um... There are a number of reasons why it can be interesting to uh, receive Bitcoin data from a satellite. So one is uh, blockchains are, you know, Bitcoin blockchain is a pretty interesting thing, but you do have to uh, have a single ledger, like a fork in the ledger accidentally can be risky in that you would accept transactions that are on part of the network. And occasionally countries will have... uh, partial internet disconnections. So people in the country may be able to access local websites or use the internet locally, but unbeknownst to them, depending on what they're accessing, they may not be reaching the rest of the world. And this is called a net split in technical terms. It can happen for a number of reasons, including temporary configuration errors uh, on on BGP routers or like physical disruption, like a fishing boat accidentally breaks an undersea cable or something like that. So with the satellite, you have a completely uh, independent, redundant connection to the internet. So you're going to notice if you're, you know, if there's a divergence between the data you're getting from the satellite and what you're seeing on the local internet. So that's a kind of uh, redundant connection, which is good for reliability. Uh, another reason is cost. So in Western countries, you know, many people have internet connections and don't think much about the cost of that, but there are many countries in the world in emerging markets where the cost of a high-speed internet connection is, you know, perhaps as much as a average salary or so on. So, um, and you see that with sites that try to catalog where Bitcoin full nodes are, and you see that some countries don't have many at all. Um, so the satellite provides, a, it, it reduces the cost of participating in the Bitcoin network, uh, you know, your ability to run a full node on the network because there's no charge for the transaction data and the equipment you need to receive it is very low cost. So it's about $100 US dollars worth of parts, um, maybe less if you can reuse a satellite TV dish. Um, and it uses uh, software-defined radio, so a small USB um, analog to digital converter and does most of the calculation signal processing in software on a laptop. Um, so that's that's another factor. And it's also more private. So even if you have a high-speed connection, 
you're advertising to the internet at large that you're running a full node. It's a peer-to-peer network, so people can look for your node and connect to it. And you know, even if you're not uh, accepting inbound connections, other people on the network will see your outbound connection, your ISP can see that you're running Bitcoin. And so receiving Bitcoin data via the satellite is, has much better privacy. It's a passive receive-only technology, so people can't tell that you're using Bitcoin. Um, and I think it also helps with decentralization, so some robustness and availability. So there are situations where uh, governments in countries undergoing political turmoil, where the government or military may disrupt or turn off internet or uh, GSM phone service. And so that prevents people from you know, coordinating, exchanging pr- private messages, political commentary about what's going on, and uh, being able to pay with, with uh, Bitcoin. So having redundant connection and connectivity can allow people to transact uh, reliably in you know, any location and in any kind of network conditions. Yeah, I love that explanation. And it really, to me, it strikes me as this is like a critical piece of Bitcoin infrastructure that Bitcoin potentially, it's on this pathway of potentially becoming the global money of the world. And if you want the global money of the world, everyone has to be able to access it. So the next thing I was keen to understand was how, can you talk to us a little bit on the structure of Blockstream satellites? So from what I was reading, it looks like there are teleports and uplinks that transmit the blocks to the satellites. And then the satellites transmit the Bitcoin blocks to people who have set up the receiver. Could you talk a little bit about that setup? Yeah, so uh, just today we added, uh, well, it's it's been online in testing mode, but we turned on additional coverage zone. So I can talk about that as well. So um, we have now four satellites uh, covering six coverage zones, and there um, there are redundant connections. So the the teleport. Uh, let's just back up. A a satellite is actually a fairly uh, simple piece of technology in one way of thinking because it doesn't do much in the way of signal processing on the satellite. So generally speaking, it's broadcasting down through an array of antennas to cover land areas, data that was sent to it in, in an analog form factor. So it just sort of turns it around and broadcasts it down again. So the intelligence, if you like, is in the uplink. So the uplink or teleport is a, a site with a redundant, reliable internet connection, power, some uh, signal processing to convert digital data into the right signal to send to the satellite, the right frequency range and encoding. And then that gets broadcast up to the satellite with a with a, a dish, a larger dish. And then it's uh, the characteristics of it were tuned to support small dishes, so 45 centimeter uh, dishes, which are sort of standard um, satellite dish size for satellite TV to keep costs down so that people could use uh, the basic equipment. Um, now, there's some redundancy with the teleports. So, for example, over the US, there are two different satellites. And another form of redundancy is the uh, at the western uh, teleport, it's able to see the eastern satellite. So, 
if the internet connection were to go down on a Western teleport, the Eastern teleport, it, it would be able to receive blockchain data via the other satellite. So there would be a higher latency because the data would go up to one satellite, down to the other base station, and up to the second satellite. So as we've added more uh, satellites and coverage zones, we've been able to improve the redundancy using the satellite connection itself if, if an internet connection went down at a teleport. Yeah, I'm really getting that sense of building it, building out redundancy into the Bitcoin network and ensuring that there is greater global access and ease of access, privacy, and just maintaining, as you mentioned, uh, or lowering the fork risk. So maybe it would now be good to touch on this new update that, that Blockstream are coming out with, which I understand is the satellite API. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right, so... Um, one of the things that we found when we first launched the satellite service last year was that people were interested to broadcast other data on it, so Bitcoin-related data or applications related to Bitcoin. And so we thought, okay, well, we can probably make an API to allow people to send application messages through the satellite. So how that works is we, on, on the teleports that are sending data to the satellite, we added additional software so that a user can connect to it using uh, a REST kind of programming web interface and send a Lightning payment, so using Bitcoin Lightning, which supports fast and low-cost micropayments using Bitcoin, a payment for the message cost. So it's quite low-cost because it's just comparable to Bitcoin transaction data. Um, and that data would be broadcast across all of the satellites and arrive to all uh, satellite receiving nodes. And it's so it's a broadcast, but if you want to use it to do a point-to-point -point message, so a message from one person to another specific person, you can do that by marking it for their attention and uh, encrypting it for them. Okay, cool. So what we're doing now is basically putting on a function that enables users to send messages anywhere around the world and they can use encryption to selectively disclose that message to parties who they choose rather than the, you know, the sender, you know, um, what sort of, if you could comment on the encryption that's used on these and, you know, can the sender or the receiver or the content of the message be known by third parties? Um, well, if it's encrypted, then only the recipient will be able to decrypt it. So I think that's the... Uh... The advantage there for sending a direct message. There could be use cases also for messages which are intended for an application. So um, some people have started working on connecting Blockstream satellite download, you know, the, the full nodes that people run when they receive Bitcoin data via the satellite. On that node, you run a Bitcoin node. So they've started connecting those to mesh networks. So it's a way to sort of replicate that data and share the uplink, let's say in a village uh, or in a town or a marketplace in emerging markets. So um, when you do that, you might, you know, you might have an application specific to that, like let's say a wallet or something, and it may miss some auxiliary data. So for example, maybe you want to know uh, the price of Bitcoin, like the exchange rate, and that could be sent by the application developer who maintains the wallet, he could send that data and periodically and the application could receive it using these mesh networks. Right. So as I understand it, then 
you're suggesting that people could combo this technology with other technologies such as that GoTenner mesh networking technology. Yeah, exactly. Or like a Wi-Fi hotspot. I think some people have explored the idea of setting up um, a Wi-Fi hotspot that gives access to Bitcoin in metropolitan areas, like in, in cities or in remote locations. So it could be Wi-Fi technology or mesh network technology. People have also looked at LoRa for longer haul, sort of a low bandwidth, longer distance radio, where the mesh network uh, is typically short distance, and a way to share internet connectivity and data. Fascinating. And then you mentioned the use of Lightning Network as well. So can you touch on how uh, logistically, how, how does that work? Like is, is the individual connecting to the Lightning Network through a different means with the internet to make the payment? Uh, so actually Lightning is for sending. So you would need a normal internet connection or a bi-directional internet connection to the message sending API. So Lightning is uh, a bit interactive. It's, it's uh, you know, when you want to, if you have a Lightning wallet and you want to send to another Lightning user or send to a service that accepts Lightning payment, there are a sequence of messages that come backwards and forwards as you establish the connection and negotiate uh, your software negotiates the payment. So the lightning I'm referring to is for the application author or the message sender to connect to the lightning network, connect using the lightning network to the satellite API and pay for a message and then have that message go through the satellite. Now it would, it would be possible to use the satellite received Bitcoin data as a basis for doing Lightning payments. Now, so Lightning is, as I say, an interactive protocol, but nevertheless, the cost of receiving the Bitcoin data can be expensive. Whereas with Lightning, you're only incurring costs related to the payments you make yourself or payments you route for other people. And so those tend to be uh, smaller, smaller amounts of data. So, you know, for a main chain Bitcoin transaction, there are people that run SMS gateways so that you can send a transaction via SMS and it, it will make its way back to the Bitcoin network. So it's kind of gateway function. Also, you know, you could uh, make an interactive lightning payment informed by the full node that where you've received that data from the satellite. And so it can be the case that people have, you know, 2.5G or 3G connectivity. It's just that it's expensive to receive the full Bitcoin data on an ongoing basis, right? I see. Got you. So, it, it's the intended you know use here might be that you down you use Blockstream Satellite to download you know to have your full node to download all the blocks and the headers and so on. But in terms of broadcasting a specific transaction to make a payment, you might that you know the individual might be able to use their mobile phone connection or one of those gate SMS gateways you mentioned to do a payment. Right, and I mean the. You know, the Bitcoin data on a monthly basis can be uh, sort of in the gigabytes, right? Um, so maybe 10 gigabytes or more. If you know, that, would, that would be if you sort of put it into a low bandwidth mode where it didn't resend transaction data and act as a relay in the Bitcoin network. If you were just receive only, you know, you, you could be as high as 10 gigabytes a month. And so... You know, for areas that have restricted bandwidth, that's a lot of data and could be expensive to receive. However, even if you're paying at quite high data rates, uh, you know, using 
GSM data, or there are satellite-based um, bidirectional services that are expensive per megabyte. Um, you know, to send a single Bitcoin transaction, which could be as small as 250 bytes or something, it it could still come out quite cost-effective, you know, a couple of cents or so, where to receive all the transactions sent in a month might be prohibitive. So you can also marry it with other forms of connectivity that have a higher cost, because then you're only paying for your own transactions. And, the, and only on the sending side, the receiving side, you would see back through the satellite. Right. And then you touched on this earlier. So what sort of cost would we be looking at to send a message? And let's talk in terms of dollar terms and then also in Bitcoin or in Satoshi terms. So the satellite service is generally for smaller messages, so a few hundred bytes, a few kilobytes, that kind of thing. And I would say, you know, one cent, 10 cent, that kind of range, um, depending on popularity. So if it gets congested, the price might go up a little bit. Right, right. I mean, I think generally it would be sensible to consider it similar to Bitcoin. You know, there's an op return, a small data field in Bitcoin intended for uh, protocol extension messages generally. But you can think about it as similar to that because if the cost of sending via the API was expensive relative to that, people would have an incentive to put data into the into the blockchain itself. And that that would also get sent by the satellite, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's another whole vector for attack as well. Okay. So what sort of let's talk a few examples in terms of what sorts of censorship resistance does this enable? As as I understand it, it's it's an alternative um, to sending messages through the standard internet or if the internet is blocked. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what are some potential you know what would be some typical uses of this service yes i mean i guess if the internet were shut off you would still be able to receive bitcoin data and application message data and another distinction with the satellite data is it's broadcast so it's not kind of directed at an individual user as far as people observing the network data where internet data is point-to-point routed so you can see which ip address it's intended for or something like that so it provides potentially better privacy characteristics. And also it's it's a, inherently a broadcast mechanism as well. So if there's data that needs, you know, that would need to go to many people, it's lower cost on a per recipient basis. So the uh, Bitcoin satellite data doesn't increase in cost if, you know, a million people receive it or 10 million or 100 million and so on, right? It's very scalable in that sense. One topic that confuses some people is uh, they might wonder, okay, well, is this satellite system very centralized, right? If I'm a user of the Blockstream satellite, am I trusting the transaction and blockchain data received via this? Yeah, that's an interesting question with a interesting technical answer. So now you can you can look at an analogy of how the Bitcoin peer-to-peer network uh, transmits information. So typically a Bitcoin node has eight neighbors. So it's establishing or maintaining connections with eight sort of randomized other nodes in the network. And then the transaction data is relayed through those. And you could ask the question, you know, if, if I had eight connections to my computer and one of them is very high speed, you know, like 10 megabits or something that's going to get data quite quickly to me. And the other ones are very slow, you know, sort of, uh, 
2G modem speed or something. Now, you could ask the question, do I have to trust the high-speed node compared to the low-speed ones? And the answer is no, because the data is um, sort of uh, checksums and the proof of work uh, is verifiable to your node software. So even if the high-speed connection tried to give you an invalid set of data, you would your software would automatically recognize that that's not the longest chain and you know discard that and focus on the correct data with more proof of work. So it's something similar with the satellite. So you can view the satellite as a fast uh, node and then you can cross-check it. You know, you could cross-check it with a low priority uh, slower connection or receive headers only over an, an, a standard connection. Or there's also, also was a, um, a phone service, a sort of uh, robotic voice you could call up and it's kind of like the time service. It tells you the current block height and the checksum of the latest block. So with something as low bandwidth as an SMS, you could check that you're on the right chain um, and share that information onwards and have other people verify that it's correct. So from that point of view, you're not really trusting the provider of the data because it's very low cost to cross-check it and to verify locally that it's correct. Fantastic. All right. So similar to a devil's advocate question that I've asked an earlier guest, Rigel, uh, Rigel Walsh, on this whole topic of trying to build tools that help enable censorship resistance, that I, sometimes you know a detractor might ask this question or they might say oh look you bitcoin guys you're just you're just larping you're live action real role playing um you know they might say look why are you you know why are you guys being so tinfoil hat paranoid you know that sort of censorship would never happen here how how, how would you sort of respond to your person who, who just generally doesn't feel the same way um well i think uh, there have been a number of events in recent history that show that uh, censorship is not hypothetical. You know, if, even in Western countries, we've seen deplatforming of unpopular opinions. That's a very recent topic, right? And so people have been disconnected from social media applications. Um, there are whole segments of the economy who are essentially unable to obtain banking service, even though the products or services they're providing are legal, uh, just due to kind of political pressure or, um, and you now I think also as a general backdrop that the revelations that Edward Snowden made you know over the last decade are uh, very illuminating of people who would previously been considered to being too paranoid having shown to be in not paranoid enough maybe <laughs> um, mm, vindicated at least in the yeah. sense of you know uh a government intent to have the mechanisms to surveil and index and catalog information. So it's not that you have to be guilty of anything in particular, but they're just, you know, hoovering things up. And there's a general sentiment, I mean, to what you were saying, some people will say, well, if I've, I've got nothing to hide, so I don't care. But, you know, I think what's uh, politically popular changes over time. And it's also a matter of principle, right, that people should be able to speak without feeling surveilled. I think there's some psychological studies showing that 
people will almost start to self-censor if they think that you know, things they're saying are being collected and indexed by a government entity. So that's a kind of uh, self, sub- subconscious self-restriction of what you might feel inclined to say or discuss. That's quite uh, unfortunate as well. Yeah, I think that's a very insightful comment that really whatever is popular right now may not be popular in 10, 20, 30 years' time. And also just the point you make around self-restriction and self-censorship. And you know, maybe we can't be our true selves if we don't sort of feel free to speak, you know, to truly speak freely. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how how we would actually set up you know, Blockstream satellite connection. Can you talk the listeners through just a, sort of a high level, you know, what sort of equipment you use? How, how would you go about setting it up? Right. So you need um, a satellite dish, and that could be one that has, you know, a used one. There are lots of satellite dishes that get upgraded or left unused. So you can certainly pick up used ones or reuse one that you already have. Um, and uh, a number of parts that come with it. So an LNB, which is the uh, the piece that goes on the end of the arm that uh, you see on a satellite dish. And so there's a parts list, but basically uh, a small uh, power source that amplifies that. And uh, the main other piece being a software-defined radio. So it's a kind of USB key. And the... Um, the analog signal from the satellite dish gets fed into that and it converts it to digital. And then your the software you run on your laptop um, does the signal processing to convert that into digital data and then feed it to a Bitcoin node so that you're, you you can run a Bitcoin node that's not sort of directly internet connected, as it were, except via the satellite. Um, so there's a bit of, uh, it's a, in terms of the complexity or skill set to set that up, I would say that pointing a satellite dish, if you haven't done it before, is a little bit fiddly. You know, if, you, if you're off by a degree, that translates into a great distance at geostationary uh, satellite height. But um, you can also, uh, you know, engage somebody who's familiar with satellite setup. So like somebody with a satellite TV installation business to set it up for you. Um, so that's one way to to approach that, and then the the software part of it is at this point uh, Linux software. So if you have some kind of power user level skills or follow along instructions, if you have a Linux installation, uh, that that's a you know it's not so hard. But um, if you've never used Linux before, you might find that a little tricky. Okay, so pretty much you need to be reasonably comfortable with command line um, and just basically power user level. Right. And that should get easier over time as well because, um, you know, we've put some effort into this release into making it easier and more visual to uh, tune the satellite. So there are tools where it shows you a graphical visualization about the signal strength and you can adjust the dish. Um, so there are a few parameters about the dish. It's polarization, it's uh, angle of rotation and the... Uh, you know, sort of how high it's pointing and how far east or west it's pointing. So there's a tool on the website which you can put in your uh, GPS coordinates, latitude and longitude, and it tells you which satellites you should be able to see and what angle they're at. 
to point the dish. Right. And have you had any feedback from customers who've used Blockstream Satellite so far? What's the sentiment been there? Yeah, people have been pretty enthusiastic about the idea. I mean, it, it, it sounds high tech, right? That uh, Bitcoin data is being broadcast down from space and with this release on, uh, you know, much more of landmass. So more people are technically covered, including Australia, New Zealand, and most of Asia, Europe, Africa, North and South America, and so on. So um, we've had a number of people, sort of technical people, trying different things, like uh, making their own satellite receiving kits, including electronics and power supplies and things. And as I mentioned, uh, looking to connect with mesh networking. Um, and I think, you know, also... Some people appreciate the privacy prospect so that they're interested, you know, they may have high-speed internet connection, but they're interested to connect to the satellite network to have greater privacy about their participation with Bitcoin. So generally speaking, it's um, if, if you're looking for sort of asset protection and security and privacy, it's better for you if, uh, you know, the internet at large or at least, you know, random internet nodes on the network don't know that you have Bitcoin because that will tend to leak your IP address, which can be geolocated to your physical address. And then if you have, let's say, some Bitcoin backed up on a device in your house, somebody might try to figure out where the Bitcoins are located by uh, sort of navigating information from the network. So this, this would um, provide protection against that kind of thing because it wouldn't be obvious to the network that your internet connection was uh, participating with Bitcoin. Ah, oh, fantastic point. Yeah, that's sort of like, you know, how in the movies and that where they uh, look at where people are using a lot of electricity to try and figure out where's, where's the hydroponics being used kind of thing. So it's right. a similar sort of concept there. Yep. Okay. Uh, are there any other, you know, security precautions or warnings or just some advice for users who want to go and pick up Blockstream Satellite and try and use the product? Um, yeah, there's a couple of guides online, and I think you you should follow the the LNB. It sometimes matters which LNB you have and which LNB you need depends on which part of the world you're in. So we're using different satellites at different locations. So pay attention to that part of the instruction. It's not necessarily a generic LNB. And the other the other thing to watch out for is the equipment. So the laptop or desktop that you connect it to needs to be something like an i5 class machine, the signal processing. So we get the cost of the equipment down very low because it's using the software-defined radio. The uh, USB software-defined radio parts go for a, sort of as low as $15, even $10. But that has the side effect of offloading the signal processing to a laptop. And you really need like an i5 laptop. An ARM, like Raspberry Pi or something, isn't, isn't powerful enough. Um, so that's something we're, you know, we've, we've put some work into optimizing, but it's not, an arm isn't quite able to keep up. So bear that in mind when you're figuring out what equipment to use. And um, for people who are interested and want to compare notes, there are, there's a IRC channel, um, which is the um, Blockstream satellite. And there's also a satellite channel on the Bitcoin core Slack called Blocksat. So you can, uh, go onto those and compare notes and ask questions with other people who are trying it out. Fantastic. And then you mentioned around the coverage. So 
Uh, I actually have a friend who is keen to use it, um, but he, he mentioned that Australia wasn't available yet. So it's a good thing you mentioned that Australia is becoming available. Uh, so what, what are the timelines or is it available basically now? Yeah, it's available now. So it was actually uh, running in test mode, but we hadn't published the specifications that so people didn't know it was uh, broadcasting Bitcoin data at them. But that's been going on for some weeks now. But yes, it's uh, immediately available. So um, if you're uh, battling the Australian uh, ISP problem, uh, this will take some load from your internet connection and let you, you know, do your internet things without having Bitcoin drawing from your bandwidth. Fantastic. Uh, anything else you wanted to say on Blockstream Satellite, Adam? Uh, no, that's that's cool. I mean, what, what we're interested to see is for people to uh, try different things with it and experiment. It's, it's kind of a part of... Uh, the sort of infrastructure story where when you know when you release pieces of open source or extra infrastructure there are many developers actively working on bitcoin these days and they will sort of release applications or adopt your technology and build other things on top of it so we're pretty interested to see what people come up with using it excellent okay uh, i had a couple other topics uh, that might uh, be interesting for the listeners as well so obviously as i'm sure you're aware Timothy May has recently passed, and uh, I know uh, you did um, work with him or uh, liaise with him in the past. I'm wondering, can you offer the listeners any insight into your interactions with Tim May and uh, what impact did he have on you? Uh, yeah, I mean, most of it was electronic because I was living in Europe, and I guess he was living in the barrier for most of his career and uh, since he retired, so... He retired kind of young, I think, at age 34. So he was an engineer at Intel and uh, invested in a number of tech companies with his... Uh, so kind of lived a frugal lifestyle on a professional salary and invested in lots of tech stocks. So he was able to kind of uh, get the timing right on that and then used his free time to focus on things that interested him, which you know he came across... Uh, public key cryptography and thought about the use cases for encryption, cryptography, electronic cash. So he discussed uh, a number of ideas that you know only really came to fruition most in a in a re- sort of robust or wide scale sense where people sort of noticed and it came to mainstream attention with the advent of Bitcoin. So, you know, he was talking about these things in the early 90s already. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a you know, very interesting guy to interact with online, quite forthright in his opinions, and uh, not not politically correct so if, um, as a kind of personality interaction style, um, but very, very insightful. Um, and so I, I think I met him only twice in, in person, like when I was in the, in the US at some point uh, for a conference or something like that. And uh, more recently in the Bay Area a few years ago as well. Um, so yeah, very sort of prescient early thinking about a lot of topics that became available with Bitcoin. So, you know, he talked about something he called BlackNet in the early 90s, which was sort of extrapolating from the question of, okay, you know, what if we had an electronic cash system and the ability to sell things on the internet, then you would see some kind of uh, 
darknet market, which she called Blacknet. So it was a kind of thought experiment. The technology to build it didn't really exist at the time, but he could see that the technology would likely evolve and then was able to comment politically about what that would mean. Um, so it's kind of foreseeing Silk Road and its successors, of which I guess there have been multiple. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And yeah, there are a number of technologies relating to that that people on the Cypherpunks list were discussing. So he was one of the co-founders of the Cypherpunks list. And uh, it was quite interested in the other privacy technology that evolved, like uh, Remailers for to claim to sort of reclaim um, freedom of speech and freedom of association in the online forum. So in a sense, in the online world, typically you would end up with less privacy and rights that are typically protected by laws and regulations, but those would tend to get eroded by the fact that a lot of online information is logged by ISPs and as a side effect of the technology. So he and a number of people thought it was interesting to try to reclaim that and that the online world also provides, you know, some rebalancing of power between the individual and the state in the favor of the individual. So, I mean, I think he, you know, sort of helped, helped start this kind of conversation and it was a lively discussion list. And it was, it was one of the more active posters and sort of bouncing ideas. So it was, um, it was a pretty interesting time. You know, there's a lot of rapid technology evolution and brainstorming about things that cryptography could do and how that would be good for individual liberty. Fantastic. And if there were any key articles or pieces of work of his, you know, if there was one thing you you would ask the listeners to read by Tim, what would you sort of point them to? Um, well, I th he's written a number of things, a few things. So the Cryptonomicon is a pretty long kind of uh, summary of the ideas that he developed from the building blocks. So that's kind of a, a sort of fairly full exploration of different things and implications, political, geopolitical implications and implications of the technology and how they fit together. And uh, he also more recently uh, did a presentation at the uh, Perel Nupolis Hackers Congress um, and that, that was based in Prague in Europe, but he, he was uh, via Skype or something. So, But the, the video is online, so that's uh, you know, probably a faster way to catch up with his thinking and reflections on how um, what he'd been talking about has, you know, what parts of it have come to pass and his thoughts about that. Excellent. Okay, let's talk a little bit about... Bitcoin privacy. So I know this has been uh, something you've been interested in for some time. Obviously, there were some there was some discussion online that I saw around this concept of pay to endpoint. Uh, could you outline a little bit around you know what that is as a concept and how that might work if it were to be you know, used with Bitcoin? Uh, yeah. So I mean, the discussion. So we ended up having a kind of in person couple of days brainstorming um, with a number of people interested in improving Bitcoin privacy on a practical basis. So um, during this conversation, we sort of uh, tried to look at CoinJoin and ways that CoinJoin could be used in wallets peer-to-peer -peer or and 
the protocol, uh, new protocols you might need to do that and you know how they would work with wallets. And it's quite difficult to uh, make privacy work because there's a lot of data that gets sort of linked as a side effect. Um, and so Pater Endpoint was one thing we hit on that seemed to be practical. So we wanted something that was you know, simple enough that we could implement it and have it not require uh, base protocol changes. So not require like a soft forking or change in the Bitcoin protocol, which would have a longer time frame to see adoption. Um, and so pay to endpoint was, was the idea that uh, when you are paying a service or a person, there's an opportunity to sort of do a coin join with the payment. And it provides ambiguity in part because, you know, normally speaking, I mean, so I, should, I guess I should restate what coin join is. So it's just a Bitcoin transaction has multiple inputs and multiple outputs. And people would naively assume that the inputs belong to one user's wallet, you know, Bitcoin being organized as coins. Um, and then the outputs being the person or persons you're paying and one of the outputs being change. Um, and so CoinJoin is the observation that um, the, the coins that are being used to spend don't have to belong to one person. You know, so two people could make two different payments to two recipients and join the transactions together. So then to somebody trying to analyze the blockchain, they wouldn't know if it was one person paying two people or two people paying two people. So create some uh, more ambiguity. Um, but one challenge with that is the size of the coins, because because the coins have a clear text value, the the values can become unambiguous. You know, so if if one if there are two inputs and one coin is uh, nine bitcoins and one of the payments is ten bitcoins, then you know that that coin couldn't by itself have paid the output. So it's probably the other. Let's say the other input is twelve or something. Then you know that the nine couldn't couldn't have paid it in isolation. So if you try to do a coin join in that scenario, it doesn't uh, it doesn't provide much ambiguity. So pay to endpoint is the observation that actually if the person you're paying, like um, a web store or somebody else's wallet, you're making a payment combined with a coin join, then it's it's more ambiguous because the the amount that's being paid is being subtracted from the payment, and somebody with a wallet might want to reorganize their wallet, sort of um, uh, sort of combine change, as it were, uh, which people do to sort of optimized wallets. Right, I see. And then another technology is obviously confidential transactions. Now, my understanding on that is that there are, depending on the way it's implemented, there are some different trade-offs with the way that could work. So if it were to be merged into Bitcoin, we could have the amount of a transaction being blinded, um, but depending on the construction, we may have reduced assurance or comfort on the fact that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. Uh, could you comment a little bit on that? And uh, for an earlier guest has commented on that as that trade-off between perfect binding and perfect hiding. Right. So there's a... Um sort of mathematical trade-off where you can't have perfect binding and perfect blinding simultaneously. And so there are uh, 
it's, it's possible to choose which one though. And then there's some discussion about which one will be preferable. <laughs> and uh, so the perfect binding being that, you know, you're, you're looking forward, casting forward to a hypothetical, very far future where the cryptographer using today with the key sizes it's using would be broken uh, most probably by extremely powerful computers or quantum computers at a scale that with current technology, we're not sure well, can be built physically even in the future. So sort of some question marks there. But if if that amount of computing power becomes available, then hypothetically with perfect binding, they would be able to remove the blinding and see that uh, this coin had this value. Now, um, with perfect blinding, on the other hand, when that cryptography is able to unravel things, you, you wouldn't learn which... Uh, you wouldn't know the amounts because all amounts would be equally possible. Now, the problem would be at that point that um, people could forge amounts and that, that would be bad for the coin security. It would you know, allow inflation or changing the cap and so on. So that's obviously something that would have to be fixed. And so that introduces a third possibility, uh, which Tim Ruffing called uh, switch commitments, which is you start with... Um, perfect blinding and at a future time at which you start to question whether the uh, quantum computers or algorithms would be getting closer to making it possible to decrypt this information then you uh, switch to perfect blinding so you kind of get the benefits of perfect blinding uh, in the short term and then in the future you switch if, if that becomes necessary um, and so there, there are, I think, reasonably accepted cryptography to do either of those two things using Pedersen commitments for perfect blinding and Algamal commitments for perfect binding. And the other piece of technology which relates is bullet proofs, which are sort of more compact, more space efficient. Um, however, they, uh, they don't, they're not able to provide perfect blinding. So, sorry, perfect binding. Um, so they, they have inherently the uh, kind of inflation risk. Um, so I would say that the technology is evolving quite quickly, but, you know, so new new inventions are coming to light and bulletproofs were not known about, you know, until they were invented in the last year or so. Um, so you may see some further progress in, uh, size and performance and assurance provided, but that's that's the kind of trade-off. And you know, strangely, there there are different ways you can look at this. So, you know, if you take a privacy-first kind of viewpoint, you might say it's better that privacy is preserved at all costs. But then, in terms of the um, you know uh, security of the network, if if people keep privacy but the coin becomes unusable, that's a different problem in the future. Right, and. I suppose the other aspect is also the getting consensus on on you know which direction we go, right? Whether we go blinding or binding or for the switch commitments, uh, is it possible that you know there may just be some nasty trade-offs either way, whichever selection that make full privacy for on-chain Bitcoin infeasible and just not likely to ever get merged in? Do you have thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think that the uh, you know. From, from what I've seen, Bitcoin users 
seem to be quite interested in improving privacy and fungibility of Bitcoin. So I don't necessarily see a kind of political will or like user intent and market interest problem. And technically, I mean, with the elements and liquid sidechain, we've deployed this technology for so that people can use it actually on a sidechain to see how it works and look at kind of look at the trade-offs. It's sometimes interesting to try things firsthand rather than you know just looking at papers and explainers. Um, so you can kind of see it in action, and that's using the perfect blinding variant. But I think I think the switch commitments are relatively reasonable trade-off. Um, probably the thing which kind of muddies the waters now is that bulletproofs are quite a lot uh, more compact, <laughs> and so it's kind of um, more scalable. Yeah, so it's kind of att- attractive to to consider that option as well. So maybe there's a way to sort of start with bulletproofs, you know, perfect blinding aspects, and have a switch commitment to Algamal commitments later because. You know, the prospect of uh, the cryptography being broken or sufficiently powerful supercomputer, you know, quantum computers to attack this in, in any kind of short term seems quite unlikely to me. You know, I think you're talking decades or more out. And, you know, with a switch commitment, you uh, just want to see the system upgraded before that comes into effect. And you've got to bear in mind that. If we, if quantum computers existed and were available, that could, uh, you know, undo these kinds of transactions. It would affect everything, you know, internet security in general, online banking, encryption, all all kinds of things would change, right? So, um, I think uh, we would know about it and we would have time to to react, and we'd see indications that quantum computers were uh, the technology was improving. Which to date uh, you know, has uh, there's been progress, but it hasn't been to very large parameter sizes and practical speeds and that kind of thing. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, out explaining that. That's uh, a great explanation on that. Uh, and also, you mentioned uh, your thoughts on the concept of sufficiently powerful quantum computing being decades away. Could you outline a little bit around that, and then what the likely responses? from a Bitcoin point of view, would be such as a switch to post-quantum cryptography if, if it were to ever occur? Yeah, so, I mean, I think if for people who are not following the kind of uh, BIP, BIP discussions and the discussions about, you know, incrementally upgrading different parts of Bitcoin, they, um, they may think it's more difficult than it is to introduce a new signature scheme. So, you know, so as a point of... of uh, Current topicality, the Schnorr signatures are under uh, serious discussion. There are drafts and uh, implementations and work on sort of serialization aspect of the signatures and security of multi-signatures using them. And so I think it's reasonably straightforward on the scale of Bitcoin changes to introduce a post-quantum signature scheme, um, such as Lamport signatures or other variants, as a you know third signature option, so I, I presume that the you know, if we presume that the Schnorr signature goes forward and gets introduced into Bitcoin like next year or the year after, that will be an ex, sort of a live example of Bitcoin having introduced a new signature scheme, and 
that same process and experience could be used to introduce a post-quantum signature scheme. So something similar to that, you can you can think about the uh, switch commitment as well, that you know you start off with one scheme and you anticipate that you may need to upgrade to another scheme in the future. Excellent. And also that brings up the question as well around hypothetically again, in the future, maybe decades away, if there was a need to switch to quantum resistant cryptography, would that mean that say some of the earlier inputs, so say Satoshi's coins, could they move? I think so. So Johnson Lau had introduced uh, an idea for migrating existing coins into the new signature scheme. So his idea was that basically you you would you know add a feature to Bitcoin to do a two-stage thing where the first operation is migrate the coins and the second one is spend them. So in the migrate the coins step, you basically prove that you know the keys for the Bitcoin, but without revealing a signature and the key as such, and then use that proof to enter to record your post-quantum address and public key, and then you go on to sign with that using a post-quantum crypto. So there's this possibility for many of the stored keys in Bitcoin to make proofs about the the public key corresponding to the address without revealing a signature. So that gives the uh, opportunity to sort of um, make proofs with that and then migrate. and I think also as a general principle, you know, Bitcoin could migrate longer term to significantly different storage formats or representations. So today's blockchain is composed of scripts and public keys and a ledger of the recording of transactions. But, you know, the, the future can hold other uh, representations of the, of the data. So I tend to think of the blockchain as more an artifact, so a cryptographic artifact to prevent double spending. And so if its format evolves over time in ways that provide better privacy or fungibility, I think it's plausible that even if a, you know, a newer scheme some years into the future is found that it's difficult to incrementally migrate, one could you know, make a new a new uh, a new chain using the new format and import the existing chain, or have you know a migrate coin feature. So, um, I think we're not we're also not in principle constrained to you know stepwise simple changes. We can also contemplate a more major format change. So that that generally means that you know whatever technology is developed and evolved, Bitcoin's UTXO set, current ownership set, could in principle be imported into it. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, um, I've got another hypothetical just around Bitcoin privacy. So let's just imagine, say, three years from now, you know, Joe Bitcoin, the average Bitcoiner, the man on the street who who likes Bitcoin, and maybe he's he's making use of CoinJoin technology. He's using some kind of wallet like Wasabi Wallet. Uh, he runs a full node at home. And let's say Dandelion has been implemented and we've got some level of you know, protection from network de-anonymization attacks. Um, we've got Lightning Network operating a little more fully and obviously 
Lightning Network has onion routing, so that helps improve privacy. And then I suppose just generally individuals out there who are just using a smartphone wallet, well, they're using Neutrino-style wallets. They're a little bit better for privacy than the current-day SPV mobile wallets. Do you think this might be, quote-unquote, enough for the average Bitcoiner just to give them some level of basic privacy? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of activity in Bitcoin development in general at the moment, but there are significant things happening for privacy as well. So Lightning is uh, one thing you mentioned. And another thing is Dandelion, which is a kind of main chain, uh, better privacy for when the transaction is sent into the network. So it's less obvious which IP address originated the transaction. Um, and so it doesn't seem like so far that there's a silver bullet. So something that improves fungibility and privacy completely in one shot. So it seems like we're in a kind of incremental improve things where we can and uh, move the ball forward. So there's a lot of, a lot of things come together there. And Lightning is quite good for that too, um, in part because it sends less data to the blockchain. So blockchain being the broadcast part of the picture with Lightning and then the actual payments being point to point. So if there's a high degree of recirculation, which people hope to see with Lightning, then much of the transaction information never actually makes its way onto the blockchain. So you know, so you can think about the privacy as a side effect of the scalability. So if the rest of the network doesn't see the transactions, they can't analyze them, basically. They only see the netting when a transaction is eventually, when, when a channel is eventually closed. So, I mean, I think things are moving in the right direction. And, um, you know, hopefully we also see some kind of uh, more powerful upgrades like confidential transactions in, in the midterm as well, which um, sort of interacts nicely with other things in improving coin joins, for example. They become much easier with confidential transactions because you don't have to worry about the making sure the amounts add any ambiguity. Ah, good point. Good point. Okay, excellent. So, look, we're we're in a time where, you know, some people have a bear market blues, but at the same time, there's a lot of exciting things going on from a you know technical fundamentals point of view. Uh, do you have any other comments around you know technical fundamentals of Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, you know for people in the technical domain uh, at startups and individual contributors and people working on different protocols like uh, Lightning, Neutrino. Um, side chains like uh, liquid elements and rootstock. Um, there's actually uh, a, a lot of development going on both at the protocol level and in the application level. So, you know, for Lightning, there's a lot of application level work going on in wallets and uh, tools to integrate into web frameworks and people writing applications like games or websites that uh, start to show the new capabilities. So if you think about the micropayment level payments as being um, a new capability for Bitcoin because it, it allows faster, uh, sort of more instantly final, like Bitcoin transactions can take 20 minutes or more to be final uh, randomly. Um, so Lightning also supports much lower payments because, you know, there's essentially no practical minimum fee. It's uh, such a small transaction. Um, so I think, you know, overall the pace of innovation 
and application development is higher than ever. So if you look at that as a technology fundamental, there's a lot of um, momentum and technology adoption and building out for sort of next phase of adoption. And also I think something, you know, there's quite a lot of things happening in the kind of exchange ecosystem with, for example, Liquid providing more exchange settlement benefits, more privacy, faster clearance, better liquidity. And there are a number of com companies entering the space with uh, more fiat coins, different types of market participants, like um, established players like ICE, uh, their backed service, and Square as a retail payment platform that is that has added Bitcoin. Um, and Robinhood and Abra. So, I mean, there are many new services coming online and markets opening by new new entrants into the Bitcoin and crypto asset space. So I think that if you look at it from a technical fundamentals point of view, everything is uh, on a very strong trajectory right now. Um, and I think also people kind of... Uh, should generally zoom out and not not focus on short term price too much because it's it's a kind of recurring pattern with bitcoin and crypto assets that the price goes through high volatility and uh you know over a 3 year period for example as, as far as i understand that bitcoin is the um uh you know highest return asset class on the market you know amongst stocks, pink sheets, anything basically. So, you know, to look at something that is down, you know, sort of 80% range when it's uh, in in the, within 12 months ago, it, it was up a hundred times from three years before that is a kind of, uh, you know, cherry picking sections of the graph. If you zoom the graph out, it's generally increased over a long period. And that shouldn't be something, um, an unusual concept for investors because, you know, it's a common thing if you talk to uh, an advisor or anybody in the investment space or experience, like personal experience trading or making investment decisions for themselves that, um, you know, people will ask, well, what, well, how quickly do you need access to the funds? If you need them, within a month, then you probably shouldn't put them in the stock market because it's short-term volatile. But if you're willing to, 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 you know, put them in there for a minimum sort of three to five years, then the stock market statistically has outperformed, for example, deposit accounts and things like that. So, you know, Bitcoin has the same kind of um, volatility trade-off. Over, over the long term, it's been uh, essentially the best return asset class but over the short term, it's extremely volatile, and those things are related. There's a kind of risk-return trade-off. Totally agreed on that. Look, I think that's uh, pretty much all we've got time for. But Adam, I just want to thank you. It has been a, an honor to host you for a discussion. I've enjoyed this discussion so much, and I've honestly learned a lot. I think what you guys are doing at Blockstream is really, you know, it's innovative, and you're really building out the infrastructure. You've got, you guys have got your eyes on the prize. So. I'll just make sure all the listeners know where to find you. So the links for Blockstream satellite page, that's blockstream.com forward slash satellite. Obviously, Adam3, uh, Adam3.com. 
Adam3.us is your website um, and Adam3.us is your Twitter handle. Have you got anywhere else that you would like to point the listeners towards? Uh, there's, there's a good places to go. There's also elementsproject.org, which is the open source uh, GitHub repository for much of the technology we've talked about. Excellent. Well, I'll put, it, I'll put the links for that in the show notes page. Adam, thank you very much for coming on the show. Likewise. Thank you. Check out the show notes for this episode on my website, stefanlevera.com. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode and please share the podcast with your friends. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Stefan Levera. Thanks for listening.